Welcome to the public morality. One of the metrics used to measure a presidency is how they deal with crisis. Abraham Lincoln is widely regarded as America's greatest president by the manner that he handled America's greatest crisis, the Civil War. Franklin Roosevelt also historically ranks high among historians because of his handling of the Great Depression and World War II. And now that the coronavirus has unexpectedly landed at the doorstep of President Trump, we thought it might be helpful to talk about crisis management of the 35th president, John F. Kennedy. From the Cold War to civil rights to Vietnam, seemed for his brief time in office, the Kennedy administration was a constant state of crisis. Joining me to discuss the Kennedy administration's crisis management is Professor Mark Silverstone. Professor Silverstone is an associate professor in presidential studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center and chairs the center's presidential recordings program. Professor Mark Silverstone, welcome to the public morality. Good to be here, Brian. Thanks. Uh-huh. Uh, President Kennedy had essentially a thousand days of, of crisis in, in some uh, capacity. Uh, beginning in 1961, there was the ever-growing Soviet threat, uh, which led uh, to the Bay of Pigs. So let's start by having you offer like a brief a distillation of the origin and what led to the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion. Well, the assumption of power by Fidel Castro in 1959 was a traumatic event for the Eisenhower administration that was not particularly thrilled with the rule of Fulgencio Batista in Cuba, but was not really willing to court with Fidel Castro either. Castro at the time had not necessarily thrown in his lot entirely with the Soviet camp or, or with the communist camp more broadly recognizing at that time that, that there were these emerging divisions between the Chinese communists and, and the Soviet communists, but clearly Fidel was a, a man of the left, and that greatly concerned the Eisenhower administration. And so over the months from 1959, when Castro had assumed control in Cuba through the end of the year and into 1960, the Eisenhower administration began to develop plans to try to unseat him. And those were the plans that John F. Kennedy inherited on the day that he became president, January 20th, 1961. Concern was really that this would be a beachhead for a, not, uh, a power that was hostile to American interests in the Caribbean. And thinking back to the Monroe Doctrine and concern for European powers, non-Western Hemispheric powers, to have a foothold in the Western Hemisphere was deeply concerning to American statesmen. And, and this is what Kennedy confronts when he becomes president. Kennedy had uh, spoken uh, about Cuba on the campaign trail. He had criticized Eisenhower for... Uh, not um, acting as forthrightly as he might have to present to prevent Castro's emergence. It's not entirely clear what what he could have done to have affected that. But nonetheless, it was good campaign rhetoric for Kennedy in the 1960 campaign when when foreign relations was a big part of that. So in in some respects, Kennedy's rhetoric on the campaign trail, his anti-communist rhetoric, which would have 
for the course for any American politician of the time, somewhat boxes him into a corner once he does become president and he is confronted with what to do about this threat now uh, that's emerging, um, in which Castro seems even more inclined to throw in his lot with the Soviets. And so Kennedy is presented with these plans that are developed during the Eisenhower administration to try to unseat Castro. And as he moves through those plans in the first few months of, of 1961, it's hardly the only thing that he's confronted with, but as he moves through those plans, he, begun, he begins to get a little bit concerned about the way that, that this uh, operation to undermine Castro's rule is going to come off. Uh, before we get into the actual invasion, you, you mentioned uh, Kennedy's uh, campaigning uh, and, and, and critical of, of Eisenhower, I think in a larger sense that it, he ran a campaign, in my view, where it's time to get the country moving. Um, what was the relationship, or, or better still, did the Eisenhower administration and Kennedy administration talk about these plans in the interim period before Kennedy uh, actually takes the oath of office? Well, there were speaking about them publicly, uh, Kennedy had heard about them while he was campaigning. Uh, this was part of the process of providing the, the challenger in the election with up-to-date national security information, and this is simply something that was done for presidential candidates, and, and Kennedy was briefed by the C CIA. He did know that there was something afoot in Cuba. It's not clear he knew precisely what was going on or the details of an operation. Richard Nixon felt that uh, Kennedy did know precisely what was going on, and, and when Kennedy would would make comments to the effect that the Eisenhower administration really isn't acting vigorously enough to oppose uh, Castro's rule and his consolidation of power, uh, Vice President Richard Nixon, Kennedy's running mate, felt that Kennedy was really playing dirty pool, that he knew precisely what was going on, but that Nixon, in an effort to preserve the secrecy of that operation, really couldn't say anything about it. So he felt that Kennedy had, had undermined him at that point, and had, had Americans known that the Eisenhower administration was, was perhaps trying to mount some kind of an operation, and if Nixon had disclosed that, and, and obviously he was part of the Eisenhower administration that was, that was engaged in that planning, uh, he might have been able to have presented an image of himself and his campaign as being more energetic, more aggressive, while Kennedy was, was, was tarring him with, with not being uh, so aggressive. I mean, one of the signature elements of that campaign, as you mentioned, getting the country moving again with, with this new frontier rhetoric, uh, was the concern that the country was not moving again uh, with respect to foreign policy, with respect to national security policy, and particularly missile development. There was this concern that there was a missile gap uh, in Moscow's favor, that the Soviets were churning out ICBMs like sausages, its ability Who's just to famous put, line, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, its ability to, to to put missiles into space before the United States seemed to pose a threat, and and uh, and and Kennedy ran on that. Um, it became clear early in 1961 to the administration that if there was any missile gap, it favored the United States, and Kennedy, in fact, would allude to that or have his his. Uh, 
national security officials allude to that later in the year, and, and, and that might have even been one of the things that, that had led Nikita Khrushchev the following year in 1962 to try to rectify that, that imbalance. But the campaign itself, yeah, it, there, there's uh, a great concern about getting the country moving again, and, uh, and an operation against Cuba certainly would have seemed to have, have uh, portrayed the United States as, as more energetic. You, you mentioned that, um, in, maybe in part because of that uh, campaign rhetoric, by the time President Kennedy is president, um, he had boxed himself in. So talk about now the actual invasion, if you would. Well, the invasion takes place in mid-April of 1961, but over the previous few months, Kennedy himself assembles groups of advisors to go through the planning uh, that he's not entirely comfortable with, and he begins to tinker with the operational details uh, from late February into March, uh, doing so with key individuals in the CIA who are running the plan. I mean, one of the curiosities of this plan, and, and probably one of, of the elements that led to its failure was that it was really a military operation being run by the intelligence agency, the United States. I don't want to give the impression that that were flipped around, that it would have succeeded, but that certainly didn't enhance its chances for success. But Kennedy began to think that the operation was, uh, in, the, in the language of, of the day, too noisy that because there were going to be a certain number of air sorties, it was going to clearly point toward the United States as running the operation, if not merely involved in the operation. And so the president decided to reduce the noise level, to slice in half the number of, of air flights, to switch the location of the operation itself to a more remote part of Cuba's southern shore, so it wouldn't look like it was, as Kennedy saw it, a D-Day invasion with lots of, of attention paid to it and, and clearly pointing to the United States. So once the invasion begins uh, on uh, in mid-April of 1961, it, it really goes uh, south pretty quickly. There are a variety of stumbles and uh, and, and natural occurrences uh, that, that led to it. There's also faulty planning that led to it, not knowing the exact, exact depth of the beaches they would be uh, landing on. Uh, but probably the, the most important consideration that the administration really hadn't taken into account was the likelihood that this invasion really would spark the popular uprising on Cuba that it was intended to do so. Uh, and the administration, I think, had really miscalculated the extent to which the Cuban people were going to rise up against the Castro regime. Not only were, uh, were, uh, were lots and lots of anti-Castro Cubans thrown into the jails of Cuba just prior to it, uh, but there was still a large measure of, of excitement about uh, Castro's ability to overthrow the hated Batista uh, just a, a, a couple of, of years earlier. And so 
the likelihood that this really would have sparked a popular uprising was pretty minimal, but that's in many ways what the Kennedy administration was hanging its hat on. And so this is, um, I'm in fact, I don't know anyone who would argue that the Bay of Pigs was a successful campaign. So now Kennedy, young presidency, he has to deal with crisis. How, do, how does he handle it in your estimation? Well, he takes responsibility for it. Uh, he appears before a couple of, of large gatherings just after the, the uh, invasion completely comes apart. And uh, he says, essentially, victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. Um, I thought you said a thousand fathers. <laughs> a thousand fathers, right, yeah. Um, let's, let's give credit. Uh, and, and so he, he falls on his sword, which is the honorable and the accurate thing to do. I mean, there is no question that, that this was uh, an operation that was planned, uh, that was executed in virtually all dimensions except for participation, although there were Americans who were actually participating on the beaches. Um, he takes responsibility for it, and he is largely supported in, uh, by the American public. His approval ratings go up. I think they, they approach close to 80 percent by uh, a week or so after, after uh, assuming responsibility. And remember, the election itself was really close. Uh, Kennedy won by like 112,000 votes out of millions and millions cast. It was extremely close, won by one or, one or two um, tenths of a percentage. So the fact that, that larger numbers of Americans are approving of Kennedy after he fails at the Bay of Pigs then had voted for him is a significant thing. And so this kind of falling on a sword, taking responsibility, essentially conveying to the American public, look, I was trying to do something uh, that, that I thought was in our national interest. Uh, the, the Castro regime didn't have a whole lot of, of uh, friends in the United States, so he, was, he, he could count on a sympathetic uh, uh, electorate at, at that point, populace at that point. Uh, he he effectively turns things around, but it is a bitter, bitter pill for him to swallow, and he'll make a number of changes to his operations to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Mark Silverstone. Uh, he is chair of the University of Virginia's Miller Center's Presidential Recordings Program. Uh, Professor Silverstone, we, we just talked about the Bay of Pigs and how President Kennedy handled that crisis. Um, that was in April of 61. In June of 61, he goes uh, to Vienna to have a uh, summit with Khrushchev. But prior to that, in May, you have this little thing called the Freedom Riders in Anniston, Alabama. And talk about, if you would, um, not just the Freedom Riders, but sort of Kennedy's uh, leadership approach to civil rights and how it evolved. Well... Kennedy's approach to the civil rights movement was, in some ways, from a, a broader perspective, strategic perspective, uh, not too dissimilar from his approach to foreign policy. He was very reactive, uh, and uh, he was not as, as probably systematic as he should have been, uh, aside from the moral dimension of, of his leadership at that point. And 
and I think that is something to to focus on, particularly later as we want to talk about Kennedy's uh, handling of of the second Cuban crisis in, in Vietnam later on. But here in in May of of sixty one, he's confronted with really what he sees as a distraction. Kennedy's primary focus is on foreign relations, is on the United States and the world. That is what he wants to draw the American public's attention to. He delivers a number of lurid addresses, really, early in his administration, focusing on defense needs, and he tells the American public that we are um, at uh, in the hour of maximum danger, uh, and he is asking Americans for patience. He is he is preparing them for this really difficult twilight struggle ahead. And so he conditions the public in that way to allow him to try to gird us up for this confrontation with the Soviet Union. And so when he is confronted with this domestic crisis, civil rights, uh, he's thrown a bit. He doesn't want to focus on civil rights. He feels as though the, uh, the freedom riders are, are, are pains in the butt, as he will essentially paraphrase to Bobby. They are a distraction. And so uh, he doesn't react as forthrightly as he might. In fact, he ends up cutting a deal once the freedom riders uh, had, have had their, their bus bombed outside of, of Anniston, Alabama, which was only the latest in a series of, of ugly incidents as the, as the rides uh, ran their course, uh, he will cut a deal with the state of Mississippi that will allow the freedom riders essentially to move into Mississippi and then be arrested essentially um, as a trade-off for no violence coming to them. And it is, it is not a profile in courage, as, as we might say. And it's just the first step uh, in several that Kennedy will have to, to, to consider as he thinks about how to address this, this um, mushrooming movement for social justice that is not really willing to wait for the federal response. And Kennedy is slow in providing that federal response. Even though he had reached out to Coretta Scott King in the campaign and had proven himself, at least rhetorically, to be on the side of social justice and African Americans in in the movement, uh, he was really very slow to react as president. And, and that's 1961. And just staying with the theme of civil rights, if we would, then we move into 62, and then you have what James Meredith, right, in in in, in Mississippi, and how does Kennedy handle that? Does he does he does he change at all his approach, or does he pretty much stay the course? Well, he'll ultimately send in a federal response, uh, recalling what had happened in 1957 as, as Eisenhower had uh, used armed force to try to protect the students uh, going to school in Little Rock here in, in late September and early October of 1962. Kennedy had tried to, to allow James Meredith to enroll at uh, as a student at the University of Mississippi, and Meredith had tried to do that before. Uh, but Kennedy is, again, a little late to the game. Uh, and while uh, there is an armed presence in in Oxford, uh, as it became clear that there was going to be violence with, with Meredith enrolling, 
uh, it didn't come soon enough to prevent the deaths of, of two people. It is a significant move in that Kennedy shows that he's willing to insert the federal government, in, in fact, the, the significant power of the federal government into the, the freedom rights struggle. Uh, but it, it is, he does so reluctantly. He is very concerned about uh, the, the optics, once again, of, of, let's say, the North uh, occupying the South uh, and, and recalling what had happened uh, in, the, in the wake of, of the Civil War. And Kennedy is all the while thinking of the politics of all of this. You know, he's trying to get legislation through Congress, and particularly through the Senate, that is dominated by these older, white, Southern senators who are chairing committees, particularly the Judiciary Committee, but also others, um, uh, Armed Services, and Kennedy needs their help, and he recognizes that as he reaches out to support, which I do believe at the time he believes is the right moral thing, although he will not articulate it as such, um, he's got to be concerned with, with the impact of that on his entire presidential program. And uh, still, still with civil rights, and but his real leadership actually, ironically, doesn't come until the next year, um, June eleventh. In fact, which I think, which I think is one of the most underrated days in American history, at least the last half of twentieth century, because that day began with the Buddhist monk setting himself on fire, Wallace standing in front of the University of Alabama to block Vivian Malone and James Hood from entering. Kennedy then sort of looks at uh, Ted, Ted Sorensen and says, we need to give this speech. And then they hastily uh, write this civil rights address to the nation, where then now he is taking a more, more leadership position and putting the federal government behind what he calls this moral issue. Yeah, I, I, that's absolutely right. I, I think he does come around at that point to voicing those words as, as I, I believe that, that he was moving toward, and in fact the legislation itself begins to be assembled uh, following the May disturbances in Birmingham. So they're, they're moving on putting legislation together, even though the opportunity for making that known publicly doesn't come, as you say, until uh, early mid-June. And, and you're right, the, the, those days, June 10 and 11, are really consequential for the Kennedy presidency. Uh, it's George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door. It is the Buddhist monk in Saigon setting himself on fire, and it is also Kennedy at American University talking about the future of American-Soviet relations in the Cold War in terms that, that we really hadn't heard American president uh, put them in before, talking about the Soviets as 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 people who have similar concerns to Americans. Yes, there's a, a competition uh, uh, of ideologies. There's a competition for how one pursues development in the world, uh, very different ways of, of looking at life. But Kennedy recognizes that we do need to move beyond this uh, unending cycle of aggression that the previous year almost led to Armageddon. So it's a crucial turning point. Kennedy does get on board morally uh, with the, the uh, struggle for social justice, and they move ahead with the legislation that ultimately 
ultimately will become the Civil Rights Act of 1964. One thing we we, we definitely might posit it's 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 hard, and, and like I say, we, we don't know. Uh, it's all it's all speculation, but it's hard for me to see uh, uh, President Kennedy uh, before a joint Congress. Uh, using the mantra of the civil rights movement, we shall overcome the way Lyndon Johnson did. And uh, I, I don't see Jack Candy doing that. Yes. Uh, what's interesting is is to flip it around and put yourself back in 1963 and ask, could you at that point have seen Lyndon Johnson doing it? That's a good uh, question. Knowing where Johnson was. So so these, these thought experiments, I think, are super super helpful because they they do ground you in that particular time and 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 allow you to consider the 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 various factors weighing on them i think a similar thought experiment uh you can you can run with uh with vietnam as well and 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 we could talk about that later but but so much of of our counterfactual thinking uh, we try to advance into the future. You know, could, what would Kennedy have done? What what would Johnson have done? But if you kind of replay the tape and and you take where where an, in, an individual was, president was at a crucial moment in time, and then put that person back a little bit, could you have seen that person acting in that capacity at that point? Well, we're we're going to get to that thought experiment because I think I have one I want to put forward to you on Vietnam. But before we do that, let, I want to talk about the other crisis, the one that Kennedy is um, largely given uh, high marks for, obviously, in 62, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, I want to set it up this way. I want to, and the question I have for you: uh, Do you think is it that the Cuban Missile Crisis, the aggressiveness say of Nikita Khrushchev, was based on the year before with the failed Bay of Pigs, uh, sort of the the Vienna summit between Kennedy and Khrushchev, where Khrushchev seems to, uh, by all accounts, have his way. And then um, he got no pushback from Kennedy uh, for the Berlin Wall going up, and we can discuss that as well. Does that is the, is that what leads to the Cuban Missile Crisis of '62? Yeah, I think uh, that those are some of the things that lead to the missile crisis in '62. Uh, Kennedy did seem to be more reticent than Khrushchev would have thought an American president would be. Uh, Khrushchev couldn't understand that, that, that Kennedy didn't really act more aggressively to save that operation in April of 1961. And, and as you mentioned, uh, the meeting in Vienna uh, doesn't go particularly well from Kennedy's perspective. He feels that he's browbeaten by Khrushchev. Khrushchev pushed him around, and, and it wasn't too tough to do so. And Kennedy really doesn't do anything to, to uh, respond to the, the Berlin Wall. Then there is this tank crisis in October, that's partly settled by really back-channel communications, which will uh, become important later on. But Kennedy looks like he's kind of getting pushed around a little bit. He doesn't really want to engage militarily in Southeast Asia. At the time, Laos is the big concern, and Kennedy doesn't want to go to war in Laos to, say the, to save the anti-communist elements there. So there are a series of, of developments that take place that suggest that Kennedy uh, might not be uh, as as aggressive as his his general rhetoric is, and and therefore the Soviets might be able to get away with sneaking in these missiles under Kennedy's nose. I don't think it's the only; those are the only reasons why 
Khrushchev decides to deploy Soviet missiles to Cuba. Uh, there is the general concern about the fate of Cuba itself and its revolution. Uh, the fact that, that Kennedy didn't act aggressively in April, or, or uh, additionally aggressively in April of 1961 didn't mean that he wouldn't do so in the future. And in fact, there were all kinds of noises being made that the United States might be gearing up for another try. Uh, the administration had, had clearly assembled uh, the, the assets it needed to do so. Operation Mongoose, the CIA operation to unseat Castro, takes root in October of 1961. Kennedy uh, impanels this whole new group on counterinsurgency in January 1962. There's a lot of energy around covert operations and activities, and certainly having had... Uh, uh, his eye blackened as a result of, of the Bay of Pigs, Khrushchev thought might have led Kennedy to launch another operation. So Khrushchev wants to protect that. He's also concerned about the image of the Soviets in the world with uh, the People's Republic of China uh, proving to be perhaps a more militant, aggressive force in support of people's revolutions, peasant revolutions around the globe. And then there's the concern about the strategic balance as well. And Khrushchev recognizes, as a result of some statements that the Kennedy administration makes, that everybody now knows that the Soviets are behind the Americans, that if there is a missile grab, as I mentioned earlier, it's in the favor of the United States. So there are several reasons why, why Khrushchev is interested in putting missiles uh, into Cuba. Kennedy will add one more. It's a pressure tactic to get the United States to cave on Berlin which Khrushchev had been interested in essentially handing over, along with um, uh, all of the access routes to Berlin through eastern Germany, to the East Germans themselves. So there are really a lot of factors in play that lead the Soviets to decide in the spring of 1962 to begin to put missiles onto that island. How do you, and and uh, talk about Kennedy's leadership through that crisis. Well, really, it is one of his finer moments, and uh, Kennedy's ability to prevail in the missile crisis uh, comes about largely as a response to the way that he had handled the Bay of Pigs in 1961, and this is part of the learning that he undergoes, and 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 I would would suggest that. These are one. This is one of the traits that you would see in in successful leaders, particularly leaders who are successful in crisis management, is their ability to learn, to reflect, to be curious, uh, to be self-critical. And Kennedy is all of that as he thinks about what had happened before. So, uh, come the fall of 1962, he's really surrounded himself with a different group of advisors. Bobby Kennedy, his brother, the Attorney General, who was not really part of the inner circle on foreign relations early in the administration, he comes much closer to the president. Kennedy will rely on him more so than ever. Same with Ted Sorensen, Kennedy's alter ego, as he was described, his speechwriter, but, but so much more than that. Kennedy will rely on these people, loyalists, who will support the president, but can also speak truth to his power in ways that others might not have. And in April of 1961, they were all new, and they were kind of feeling their way with this new president. The relationships had not really blossomed as they had by uh, by 
the, the fall of 1962. So by that time, I think everybody is able to, to be more frank and honest with, with Kennedy. And Kennedy has also decided to use this rump group of the National Security Council, uh, the executive committee that will be kind of referred to colloquially as, as XCOM, to think about what the proper response is. And that XCOM will meet secretly from the moment that Kennedy, essentially the moment that Kennedy finds out about the missiles, uh, until Kennedy goes on television on the 22nd of October and tells the American public what had happened and what the United States is going to do about it. So it's, it's really his, his, his curiosity, his self-reflection, his self-criticality, uh, or self-criticism that allows him, I think, to take some steps uh, that will serve him well. But it's also his sense of empathy, trying to put himself in the other guy's shoes to understand what Khrushchev is going through, why he might have done this, uh, and how and how a better understanding of that might lead to a successful conclusion, uh, which will save the world from from just a, a cataclysm. Again, I'm speaking with Professor Mark uh, Silverstone of the University of Virginia's Miller Center, and we're talking about uh, the crisis management of the 35th president, John F. Kennedy. And Professor Silverstone, I want to read a quote from the, uh, that was in Vienna, 1961, that President Kennedy gives to uh, Scotty Reston of the New York Times. Um, and uh, what he says now we have a problem talking about his, uh, his summit with Khrushchev. Uh, now we have a problem uh, making our power credible, and Vietnam looks like the place. Um, that is pretty much the crisis, obviously, that was unfinished by the time of uh, November 22nd. In the, from, from the Kennedy administration standpoint, Talk about that crisis and the responsibility uh, of President Kennedy on that larger crisis that was Vietnam. Well, Vietnam is an unfolding crisis. It's an emergent crisis over the course of his administration uh, that really begins to ramp up during his administration. The National Liberation Front uh, is created in South Vietnam, uh, with with uh, close coordination with Hanoi at the tail end of 1960, and what had been been a political struggle during the course the latter the the latter years of the 1950s, while Eisenhower was president, becomes a much more militarized struggle during the Kennedy administration, and uh, Kennedy is aware of. Vietnam as a flashpoint. In fact, at the end of his first week in office, he receives a report from Ed Lansdale, uh, the the Pentagon and CIA operative who had served Diem in 1954, 1955, trying to help him establish a, a solid foundation for a government. Lansdale, who had supported anti-communist elements in the Philippines in the post-war era. Lansdale, who had gone back to South Vietnam uh, at the end of the Eisenhower administration and is now presenting Kennedy with a report on his findings. And, and Kennedy... Uh, apocryphally says, this is the worst one we've got, isn't it? And so Kennedy really is aware of what's going on in South Vietnam at the time, 
But the more dangerous crisis, and in fact, the one that Eisenhower tells Kennedy about, Eisenhower doesn't talk to Kennedy about Vietnam and the transition, is Laos. So for much of 1961, that is what Kennedy is focused on. Absolutely, he is concerned about Vietnam uh, in the wake of the, of the Bay of Pigs. In fact, Kennedy will impanel a task force to figure out what to do about it. Uh, Lyndon, he will send Lyndon Johnson over to Saigon in May of 1961. And, and yeah, after the conversation with Khrushchev, Kennedy feels as though there is a need to stand up to the Soviets. He is not going to do it in Laos because the logistics are really not good for the United States. It doesn't seem like the Laotians, at least the, the anti-communist Laotians, are really girding up for a fight. But the South Vietnamese are. And Kennedy feels that that is the better place to make a stand. And so for the court, throughout the course of 1961, there is a presidential program put in place that there are going to be American special forces going into Vietnam to train the South Vietnamese. There's going to be more economic assistance uh, uh, for the South Vietnamese. Uh, there is going to be more guidance for the South Vietnamese military and its operations against the South Vietnamese communists. Uh, but by the fall of that year, it's all seemingly coming undone because the the communists have become more aggressive. They are starting to to kill civilian officials at a faster rate and do so in a public way. And the administration of uh, President Godin Ziem asks the Kennedy administration for some more support. In fact, at one point, he even asks for for uh, a bilateral treaty. Kennedy will send a fact-finding mission over. It's something he does again and again and again. In fact, this, this approach of using fact-finding missions or task forces is emblematic of, of Kennedy's approach to foreign as well as domestic policy. But, but by the time that fact-finding mission comes back to Kennedy and they have a conversation about what's going on in November of 1961, Kennedy gets on board with this plan to support at much higher levels anti-communist elements in South Vietnam, not so far as to introduce combat troops, but to introduce U.S. military advisors at an increasingly rapid rate. And was, so, I was going to say, was the, the fact-finding mission that you're referring, is that the one where uh, Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield goes on? Actually, this one in 1961 is uh, undertaken by Maxwell Taylor, who at at that point is Kennedy's military representative. Kennedy had brought Taylor into the administration after the Bay of Pigs to conduct a post-mortem on it. What had gone wrong and, and, and what can we do to prevent this in the future? He stays on uh, in service to the president largely because one of the byproducts of the Bay of Pigs is Kennedy's increasing distrust of the military, um, his, his, his uh, feeling as though he was really poorly served by, by the Joint Chiefs in that crisis, as well as by the CIA. And so he will interpose Taylor between himself and the Joint Chiefs. Uh, and one of, one of the, the actions that, or one of the tasks that, that Kennedy asks Taylor to undertake is to go over to Vietnam, see what's going on, come back and tell me what we should do about it. Many view, uh, regardless of political orthodoxy, that 
that Kennedy would have fared better in the overall handling of Vietnam than his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, but doesn't, is there any um, judicious historical uh, assessment that doesn't uh, give uh, Kennedy some blame for what became the disaster known as Vietnam? Well, there's no question that the escalation of U.S. involvement in Vietnam took place under John F. Kennedy. Now, it's a different kind of escalation uh, that takes place uh, under Lyndon Johnson, and it's different both in degree and in kind. Kennedy deployed larger numbers of advisors. Uh, By the end of 61, there were about 3,000 U.S. military advisors in South Vietnam. By the end of 62, there were about... um, uh, 9,000 there, and by the time of November 1963, there are well over 16,000. And and the profile was such that they were really destabilizing, in many ways, South Vietnamese political society. So, so Kennedy escalates U.S. involvement because he's really committed to winning the war. And I think he remains deeply interested in winning that war uh, by the time he goes to Dallas, even as he has become increasingly uncomfortable about what that means for the United States. Uh, remember, throughout 1963, it had become more apparent to the public, as, as, and particularly to Kennedy, and you had mentioned the, the Mansfield experience, right? Senator Mike Mansfield, who had been a GM supporter during the 1950s and even into the very early 1960s, uh, had gone over to South Vietnam at the tail end of 62, comes back with a report for Kennedy uh, that is deeply pessimistic. Uh, things are back to where they were when GM first became president, if, if not worse, or they certainly hadn't gotten any better. And Kennedy is really upset because uh, seemingly uh, all of the the efforts that he and his administration had undertaken to turn things around had really not worked. But he's he's left with this with this unfolding crisis of deepening American involvement in a place where he feels that he really does need to take a stand, particularly after he's decided that Laos is going to be neutralized, essentially taken off the Cold War chessboard. He can't really do the same thing as easily next door in Vietnam and still get away with it politically, uh, particularly as he's going into an election year of, of 1964. So while uh, the, the ZM regime um, is, is kind of coming apart, uh, uh, politically at home with the emergence of the, the Buddhist protests in May, and it doesn't look like the war is progressing as as well as one might ha- have hoped, uh, Kennedy is confronted with, with another question of what to do now when the possibility of unseating Jim lands on his desk. Should he support a coup against Jim? Um, what does it mean for the United States to support a coup? And essentially... Uh, he gets on board um, with the mantra that whatever supports the war uh, we're in favor of, whatever hurts the war we oppose. And at the time, it seemed as though, conceivably, supporting the war meant getting some other leadership in Saigon. But, but the, you say that it comes to his death about supporting the uh, coup. That's what, Cable 243, that's in August. And, and, does, and King doesn't make a decision 
on supporting the coup until the eve of the coup, which is like November 1st. Is that correct? Yeah, so so I think it's important to emphasize that if it, and, and Kennedy has sent Lodge over, Henry Cabot Lodge, who had, Kennedy had a long history with, uh, becomes the new American ambassador to South Vietnam. Uh, he's appointed earlier in the summer, but he finally goes over to, to South Vietnam in, in late August, and he arrives at a, a really awful time. Ziem has just declared martial law, uh, and uh, Kennedy had uh, a meeting with Lodge prior to Lodge's departures. One of the, the interesting meetings that Kennedy taped, he had a secret a tape recording system in, in the Oval Office. And you can hear Kennedy and Lodge talk about what this means, all of this resistance to Ziem that had been building up. Kennedy is not opposed to a coup if a coup is going to be in the best interests of thwarting the communists from emerging victorious in South Vietnam. Uh, even in, as we get into October, as you mentioned, uh, Kennedy after the aborted coup in August, following that cable 243, Kennedy does believe that essentially they're going to have to live with ZM uh, and try to work things out with him uh, until a coup comes up, and if it does come up, and it does finally come up uh, at the tail end of that month. They're unhappy about the way it is unfolding and their inability to, contr- to control it. I think that they're more concerned about their inability to control the coup than the mere fact that one was going to take place, although there are divisions on that as well. So with all all we've said today, when you look back at the Kennedy administration in terms of crisis management, which pretty much was the entire thousand days of his administration, what what are some key takeaways that might be useful in a macro context for anybody holding the Oval Office? So I think one of the things that Kennedy did well was to to try to revisit the logic and the approach of his administration within crises to learn from them. His was, um, at least as much as other administrations, uh, in a learning mode. And you can see that in the wake of the Bay of Pigs. Uh, Kennedy rearranged the personnel around him, he sent packing advisors or officials who were seen as either um, disloyal or hostile to the administration and brought in people who were more loyal or more sympathetic. There are, of course, problems with doing so. You don't want to surround yourself with, with yes-men and yes-women. But he was able to do it in a way so that he could get frank, unvarnished um, advice from people who knew him and who could speak to him like that. Uh, He also reorganized processes around himself. So things were fairly haphazard early on in the Kennedy administration. He restructured his decision-making process so that it was more orderly, so that he could have proposals and options more thoroughly vetted, by everybody who needed to be in the know, which is not something that took place early in his administration. Uh, Kennedy set up uh, this essentially crisis management operations center, the Situation Room. Uh, Kennedy builds so that he can get all the right information um, flowing into him uh, when it's necessary. So, so those are some of the measures that Kennedy takes 
um, in response to the the Bay of Pigs that helped him out in the missile crisis uh, as well. But then there's also the the peculiar personality traits that a leader brings to the situation. And I think Kennedy was Kennedy had a temperament for being able to stand back from a situation, not to overly personalize it, to be empathetic, to try to understand what the other person might have been thinking, uh, to anticipate that, to arrive at a better conclusion. I think Kennedy also recognized that it was important that however a crisis turned out, he was going to have to live with that relationship at some point. And so he recognized it was important not to back people into corners. Uh, that's one of the things that seemed to have taken place in the in the missile crisis. He continually was searching for a way to provide for more time. As If you can play out the string, there might be ways to devise more specific solutions to the missile crisis itself. And so that playing for time is, was really important, uh, and, and, and Kennedy, Kennedy did that, that well. Um, there was also a sense of, of Kennedy as, so this is some of the behind the scenes, but, but in public, Kennedy was a figure generally who exuded this sense of optimism and of energy. Uh, and he had built up that relationship with the American public after a while so that they felt that he could trust them. Of course, it was a different era in which people generally trusted authorities much more so than they did now. So there wasn't as much room for him to, to make up in that regard. But he was a figure, uh, certainly after the trials and tribulations of 1961, that people felt more comfortable with and uh, and tried to to exude that sense of calm, to put the, the country at ease, to recognize that, yes, we are going through tough times, and there will be sacrifices that are needed, that, that call to sacrifice that Kennedy made in his inaugural, but also in a series of speeches throughout 1961. I think that really serves him well throughout the crises of 62 and into 63. Uh, that, that's important to... to um, ask what people can do for their country, uh, as, as he would put it. So there's a, a variety of, of, of private as well as, as public actions that Kennedy takes uh, that seem to help him as a crisis, crisis manage, manager. And as you point out, the thousand days really did seem to be one rolling crisis after another. Mm-hmm. I want to thank today's guest, President's historian Mark Silverstone. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.